All right, Brian Billick here, and I have a very special guest today in White Sox, General Manager Rick Hahn. And Rick, uh, we're just a week removed from the trade deadline, and in July the White Sox traded seven players from the Major League team for uh, international slot money, cash considerations, and in return they brought in 15 different players. Um, you know, obviously there are periods where there's a lot of talks for you and, and they don't lead to transactions. But, you know, how does July of 2017 match up with your busiest times as a general manager? It's up there. It's up there. I I would say that normally the winter meetings are probably the most intense short period of time where you're having multiple trade conversations or conversations with free agents over the course of any given day. Quite frankly, there's very little sleep that goes on during the winter meetings, and it's pretty much a, I don't know, three- to five-day uh, intense negotiation with, with various clubs and, and player reps. So that probably feels a little more intense to me. I'm just I'm at the back end of the winter meetings. I'm a little bit more drained and certainly feel the effects, at least physically and mentally, of, of it. Uh, whereas over the last month or so or three weeks uh, in which we were very active in July, there actually was a, a nice steady pace to it. So it was never at any given point did we feel you know, we had to immediately move on something or we were going to lose it or that they were in fierce competition with other clubs trying to get something done. And and we were able to somewhat methodically plot our course and and execute a number of deals on different fronts. And and just other than the winter meetings, I mean, the closest thing would have to be the July 31st trading deadline. And you guys we're able to uh, make a lot of headlines there. And, and, and trading Quintana, the whole Cubs-Sox thing, you know, took every bit of the headlines. But that was uh, that took you several months of, of talks and due diligence and negotiations and, you know, dealing with the media. I mean, it was very difficult for you to uh, deal with that Jose Quintana trade. And, and in return, you guys got Aloy Jimenez and, and a player that's the industry race is one of the absolute best and I'm sure the type of guy that you wanted to lead that package. And he's been great since coming to the Sox. But at, at some point, you had to have some doubt that your price was going to be met, right? Some doubt, sure. And, you know, you are dealing with human beings, and you can only predict performance uh, so well or, or how high an injury risk that you're bearing uh, in reality is. But we did feel very confident in, in dealing with Q and given his history of consistency history of performance and, and health, uh, the scarcity of, of arguably front-end left-handed starters, as well as the control that he came with, that we weren't at least being unreasonable in setting a high price. Yes, it was. It certainly wasn't met over the course of the offseason. Uh, over the course of the time where he struggled a little bit early on in the season, there were times where you felt that we were probably going to have to lower the price because not only was the control dissipating, but the performance wasn't quite to the, the level that we had uh, seen from him historically. In the end, we felt we got uh, the above the line, so to speak, with the appropriate value, and, and once the Cubs were willing to bid, build something off of Jimenez and Cease, it became fairly clear that that was going to be the best avenue for us on, on a Quintana trade. But, but Yes, we, there certainly is period, are periods of time, and we, we see what's written, and we hear the speculation that, you know, they're overplaying their hand, or they should not have Quintana start for them again, or uh, their asking price is unreasonable. But at the same time, we also know that a huge, huge amount of the information out there in terms of what was offered or what we were asking for was just simply erroneous. 
the teams that we came closest with on Q, uh, obviously there was nothing about the Cubs prior to the press release announcing the trade, but there were also other clubs involved that were the closest to acquiring Quintana that there were simply no rumors about. There were certainly no specific rumors about over the course of the month. So while there certainly was a fair amount of noise outside the organization about uh, overplaying our hand or too lofty a price or turning down certain packages, having the benefit of being part of the talks, we knew that we were simply being consistent with what we felt was an appropriate price and that the talks were actually going fairly well, uh, despite what was published publicly. And it's funny, just like with Quintana, you had uh, Todd Frazier, an expiring contract, and, and just about everybody uh, was expecting him to go to the Red Sox. And then just in one swoop, you paired him up with Tommy Canely and David Robertson and, and brought back a very highly re- regarded prospect in Blake Rutherford. Uh, you know, just covering the draft for future Sox, we covered him closely last year. And I'm assuming that's a guy that both the amateur and pro scouts of the White Sox could, uh, you know, both weigh in on. How did the White Sox scouts evaluate Rutherford, and how long had, been a, had he been a target for you guys? Well, he was a very real target for us during the 16 draft. Obviously, we went with Zach Collins, and, and uh, that was the clear choice for us when he was available at 10. But, frankly, if we did not uh, wind up with Zach for whatever reason, he was off the board or some other issue, we very likely were going to take Blake. Uh, it's not too different from uh, our decision where we wound up taking Zach Birdie, but if we didn't take Zach Birdie, we probably were going to take Dane Dunning, who we ultimately wound up acquiring in, in the Washington deal. So we had a great deal of, of information and, and preparation on these players prior to them becoming pros, uh, thanks to the work of Nick Hostedler and his staff. And our pro scouts were able to build off of that and, and similarly came to the conclusion that Rutherford uh, continues to have the potential to be a solid impact bat who's going to be able to help a club uh, offensively and defensively. It's going to take some time. He still is a, is a, albeit slightly older high school kid, he's still a high school draftee, and uh, his development's going to take probably stops at each level for a significant amount of time. But once he gets uh, those repetitions under his belt, we, we feel that his ceiling is very high. And, and you touched on some of the pitchers that have been brought into the organization, and obviously a lot of them are having great success. And, and Michael Kopech, who has all the, the flash of a superstar, he didn't get off to these, this incredible start like Dunning or Hanson. Obviously he had good numbers, but the walks were high. But over these last five starts, I mean, I, I'd assume he's been as dominant as anybody in the minor leagues. I mean, obviously he's got the triple-digit fastball, but what would you say has been the biggest driver for his success lately? You know, it's been a great year for Michael. I, I think that when we started the the season, you tried to come up with a development plan for every player in your organization, and really the most important points for Michael were being able to take the ball every fifth day, which was something that he had not yet done as a professional, and be able to compete at an accelerated uh, placement, being 21 years old in, in the Southern League. He's obviously... You know, knock on wood, the season's not done yet, but he's he's surpassed or passed both of those thresholds with with flying colors. And you're right, over the last several starts, each of which has occurred over his innings threshold for his his previous high in his career, he continues to remain strong. I think part of the reason you've seen uh, the recent dominance is that the fastball command obviously has has taken a step forward. Uh, his slider is continues to be a, a dominant pitch, and we've seen him command the changeup, which is helping to keep pitchers off, or excuse me, hitters off balance. 
we're going to, you know, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that he's already passed what we really realistically set as goals to have a successful season. The dominance that he's put on top of taking the ball every fifth day, as well as doing it at age 21 in double A, are really just icing on the cake on, on a very, very strong season for Michael. And, and, and results aside, I mean, it's funny, you guys acquire him, and, and the talk is about, oh, there might be makeup concerns, and obviously you guys did your due diligence there. But the, the kid is just, just so polished. You, you, would, you would never expect that, you know, having uh, – if you'd, if you'd never heard that earlier, he, he just handles himself so well. And, you know, but we're focusing on, you know, mostly just the minor leagues here at Future Sox. And, and dating to the end of last year, uh, you, you guys made some – you kind of clued to fans that you're moving some coaches from the minor leagues up to the big leagues, making some changes with some organizational wide roles. And, you know, perhaps most notably, Chris Getz took over as the new director of player development. And it was right at a time where the White Sox had brought in this incredible influx of young talent. Um, how is Chris taking to that job so far? It was actually a, a demand of Chris. He unless we got ourselves the top system in baseball. So we, we were just meeting our obligations to him. Uh, in, in all seriousness, Chris is uh, – I don't want to oversell it because I wind up hastening the inevitable process where he leaves us to become a general manager elsewhere. But Chris is, is one of the brightest, well-rounded baseball guys uh, that we've had the privilege of, of working with here over the years. Uh, he is uh, obviously with a, with a recent playing career still has a very great firm grasp on what it's like to be a player and the development pitfalls that players can, can fall under. And at the other extreme, he's very strong administratively in having a, a set plan and expectations for players and, and the ability to hold them accountable for, for meeting, not meeting or exceeding those, those plans. Uh, he's got a great feel for evaluation as well as a, a great feel for the, the objective analysis and evaluation of players. So putting him with Buddy Bell, uh, who obviously has a huge breadth of experience and years and decades in the game and a variety of roles, uh, we think helps round out our, at least the top of our player development structure and puts us in a, a very solid developmental position. Now, in the end, we got to continue to supply them with, with the right raw ingredients like we feel we have over you know the last 13, 14 months, and ultimately it's going to be on their ability to produce results and our, our ability as an organization to produce talent at the big league level or potentially uh, tradable assets that help get us championship caliber players in Chicago. And whether, you know, it's Chris's insight or a group effort from the White Sox front office, the, the team hasn't uh, taken players through the system like they have in the past. I mean, the, the team is in no way trigger happy when it comes to uh, time that a prospect, you know, could be called up and there's a rationale that he, he could make it to the next level. And, and in the off season, I asked you about the word patience because I feel like in most of your media, it's you were sure to uh, bring that word up in one way or another. And looking at Reynaldo Lopez, he was a notable guy that you acquired, a, a big prospect, and a guy who had major league experience already. And it seems like another example of you guys being patient. Given that his call-up to the big leagues now is, is somewhat eminent, what, what did you guys need to see him accomplish this year before you were ready to bring him up to the big leagues? It's really a handful of things. Uh, first, we wanted to see him also pick the ball every fifth day. He had done it somewhat in the minors, but obviously had yo-yoed up and down a little bit with the, the nationals as well as in the different roles in the rotation and the, the bullpen. Uh, 
we wanted to see him harness his, his fastball, which is explosive, and have that uh, uh, command become a little bit more consistent, and we wanted him to trust his secondary pitches as well. He's got a, a, a great mentality for being a potential front-end starter, and that is extremely aggressive and attacks hitters and attacks the zone. We needed to see that spread out over the course of an extended outing as opposed to having potentially more of that uh, back-end approach where he's uh, essentially more closer-like, where he's attacking, uh, albeit only in short spurts, and then the command lessens or the reliance on the secondary pitches lessen. Uh, obviously, Ronaldo has done very well at AAA and uh, answered just about every question we have there, but we do know there's going to be uh, some part, not only of Ronaldo's development, but for all these guys as we bring into Chicago, where there's going to be further development in Chicago. You, you touched on it earlier with uh, some of the coaching staff changes we made to, get, to work along with Ricky at the big league level with Kurt Hassler and Nick Capra added this past offseason, every member of our coaching staff had deep roots in player development. And that's not an accident, as we knew we were going to be going through a period of transition and using more young players who weren't going to be finished products. We're going to need to continue to see teaching and development and adjustments at the, at the major league level, uh, which we're certainly going to see from Ronaldo. We've already seen some of it from Moncada. And uh, over the coming months and, and next couple of seasons, you're going to continue to see it uh, as these players continue their development and continue to get challenged in Chicago. And, and at the end there, you brought up Moncada, and obviously being the number one prospect in baseball by most outlets is, is going to give you some praise. But I, I went to his, uh, his debut with the Sox against the Dodgers, and I, I was sitting near a Dodgers fan, and, and they were very confused at, at why the crowd was giving a near-standing <laughs> ovation for uh, a guy getting a walk. I mean, <laughs> Are you guys a, a little bit surprised? Obviously, Young, you know, he's got a lot of star power, big prospect, very talented guy. Are you a little bit surprised at, at how much the fans have really uh, had an outcry for him? It's not, it's a little broader than that, even Brian. I mean, it, it, it's in all candor. I think that the entire rebuild process has been more fully embraced by the fan base than we anticipated. We, you know, there was this narrative. Uh, which was inaccurate, that the White Sox would never rebuild because their fans wouldn't stand for it. There'd be a max exodus from the ballpark, and it'd be a ghost town, and no one would care about us, and we'd become irrelevant. Uh, we didn't think it was going to be that extreme. We did, however, think that there was likely going to be some level of dissatisfaction with the, what was understandably going to be an underperforming product at the big league level. It wasn't going to stop us. It didn't stop us from, from starting this process. But I don't think we anticipated it being as widely embraced as it has been, been White Sox fans. And, and, and you're right, I have repeatedly used the word patience in, in many of my public comments going back over a year, and I'm going to have to continue to do that because we are entering a stage here where you know we're, we're bridging sort of to that next core, and player development, whether it's at the minor league level or at the big league level, uh, is going to be part of that. And there's going to be some, some rough stretches. There's going to be some fits and starts. And one thing that I think the last year and the fan reaction has showed me over the last year is that White Sox fans are, are very well informed on the prospects. They understand what we're trying to do. Uh, they're going to obviously hold us accountable for successes and failures in the process, but they're, they're ready to uh, embrace these young guys as they come up through the system. You, you certainly saw that with, with Mankata. I, I don't think I've ever seen 
as excited of a reaction to a foul ball as there was to Makata <laughs> that night that you referenced during his debut against the Dodgers, much less a walk, standing ovation for a walk. But uh, I, I do think that's a byproduct of fans understanding what we're doing and being excited for to, to see the progress. Again, it's going to have to be patient. It's going to take some time. Moncada, as we've already seen, is going to have a bit of an acclimation process. And Moncada alone is not the guy who we have to who has to carry this entire thing. There's going to be, if things work out the way we, we designed it and anticipate, there's going to be waves of these guys coming. There's going to be other guys who have to come up and carry the water and take some of the load off of Moncada. I do think he carries a lot on his shoulders right now as sort of being – you know, for lack of a better description, kind of the first result of these trades and, and this, this transition and this, this rebuild to get to Chicago. So a lot of people want to look to him to show that it's going to work out. But he's still just a young player who's continuing to develop in Chicago who's got an extremely high ceiling. And whether, however he does here over the next couple of months isn't indicative necessarily of the type of player he's ultimately going to develop into and certainly isn't an indication of how successful each and every one of these successive players are going to be once they get to Chicago. And, Rick, I love that you mentioned that, you know, the White Sox fans would never take to rebuild because that is something I was always told, and I've always kind of made that joke every time there's, you know, a big attendance game for whatever reason. But, it, you know, the, the national media is, is very receptive of, of what you've done so far, and, and obviously the Sox fan base is, is right there behind it. But I think one of the guys that, you know, isn't getting the praise that's commensurate to his performance is Alec Hansen. I mean, the guy's, you know, striking out nearly 12 guys per nine innings, you know, an ERA under 2.5. He's just been a great both at Kannapolis and Winston-Salem. And just knowing that, you know, he's still trying to figure out his workout regimen. He's still, you know, having trouble running, uh, keeping uh, runners from stealing bases on him, just having trouble fielding around the mound. And he's still been this dominant, all that considered. You know, getting to the point, though, is, is just how excited are, are, the White Sox, or are the White Sox about Alec Hansen? Well, we're very high on him. I mean, I, I do think you're right that he gets lost a little bit in the shuffle, perhaps because he was a drafted player, uh, a second-round drafted player, as opposed to a new toy that we acquired over the course of these trades. But this was a kid who, right after the 15 draft, was very squarely in the mix to be to go 1-1 in 2016. Obviously, those junior years are important, and they have a big bearing on, on where guys wind up going. And, and as Alec has made no secret, his junior year was a disappointment. Uh, but when he was available to us in the second round, based on the history that, that Nick and, and our scouts had on, on Alec, it was a, a no-brainer to take those raw ingredients and put him in our pitching development program. Uh, and obviously, so far, he's, he's really blossomed. Uh, Jersley and, uh, uh, and our guys have had a great impact on him. Uh, he has is, he is, uh, taken a, a nice step forward under their tutelage over the recent months. And he belongs very much in that mix. You're right, there are still things he's working on. He's a young player who's playing his first full year as a pro who basically had to revamp his approach and his mechanics and work on his breaking ball consistency, and it came very, very quickly for him so far. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Matt Zaleski, who was his pitching coach in, in Great Falls last year as well as Kannapolis this year, who really had a, a great relationship and really his his instruction really clicked with Alec and, and – put him squarely in the map. I suspect 
based on his dominance this year, for what it's worth, he winds up a top 100 guy at the end of the season once these publications re reshuffle based on graduations. Uh, so then he'll probably start getting a little bit more uh, uh, notoriety within uh, baseball communities for how good of a prospect he really is. And, and continuing with Hanson, as you said with Kopech, he's doing everything that he's doing having passed his innings limit from, from years uh, past. I mean, Hanson passed his highest inning total over a month ago, and, and he still he struck out, you know, 12 guys the other day. Uh, but, you know, just one more baseball question. You know, after the winter meetings, you, you, you really stocked the farm, uh, you know, back in two days. It was, it was a big uh, influx of talent right away in the winter meetings. But the immediate reaction after, after all the trades was the Sox need to bring in uh, some more position players, and, and you did that. And the first one was uh, Luis Robert and he's the second biggest international amateur free agent ever. And, you know, I asked you in January of 2015 what, if the White Sox would ever go over pool, because I was, I was skeptical. And you said to forfeit two years of signings for one guy, it would really require someone special. That doesn't mean we wouldn't do it, but because occasionally that someone special does come along. And I'd heard that, and obviously you're a very bright guy. I kind of thought you were putting the Harvard Law degree to work there. You know, was that was was that one of your hardest acquisitions? And and what is the conversation like with Jerry Reinsdorf when you have to tell him that it would require a forty million dollar cash outlay in one year? Uh, I think it was more my Michigan education than anything at that point. But, <laughs> uh, a couple of different things going on there. We do feel Luis was that type of special talent. And going back uh, several years, Marco and I, Marco Patti, who runs our international operations, as you know, and I have had a number of conversations, you know, roughly September, October of each year about the subsequent July 2nd class and whether there is someone that special worth jumping over and potentially costing us our ability to sign uh, multiple players in future years or at least multiple players of, of uh, significant signing bonuses in, in, uh, in following years. Marco felt, and I think he was right, and that's obviously the path we followed, that initially when he joined us, when Marco joined the organization, we were in the process of reestablishing our presence internationally, and we certainly, you know, we made some high-dollar signings with, with Micah Adolfo and Reyes and uh, other players over the years, but it was important for us to sort of build up a critical mass uh, of young Latin talent and blowing the entire amount on one player or shooting past the, the bonus amount, the bonus ceiling, and costing us the ability to build that critical mass for multiple years didn't seem like the best path to reestablish ourselves, much less stock our system. So it was going to take a couple of years before we ultimately got there unless a real special player came. Now, last year when Marco and I had this conversation, he felt that, you know, it was starting to be time where we were able to sacrifice uh, the potential high bonus salary, high bonus guy for multiple years if we found the right player. He also shared at the organizational meetings last year in a, in a sort of a larger meeting with Jerry and Kenny and myself and our Latin scouts and a buddy and a handful of others uh, that he felt that uh, Luis Robert was going to become available and that he was going to be that type of talent and that he was going to be one worth sacrificing uh, the multiple signing periods for. Now, when it came down to the bonus, we're all throwing darts. We're all guessing about what he's going to wind up. You know, there was 
many rumors that he was going to surpass Moncada. There were some saying that, you know, it was going to be uh, closer to some of the players the Dodgers had recently signed and that it wasn't going to quite get to Moncada level, but nobody really knew. Uh, that said, starting, I would say, I think once he was declared free in, in spring training, Jerry was actually laser-focused on this thing. He, you know, as I've made reference to, uh, despite whatever degrees I might have, whenever Jerry's in the room, he's pretty much the smartest guy in the room. And (laughs) he absolutely understood, you know, the importance that Luis would represent to our uh, rebuilding project, that uh, where we were from an international standpoint, why Marco, as strongly as Marco felt about the player, as well as the the rest of our Latin operations and how we were going to be fine for two years if, if we had to you know sit on the sidelines so to speak. Uh, so really, from spring training up through the signing, uh, Jerry was very much on board. He obviously was you know hopeful that the bonus wasn't going to quite bloom or, or grow uh, quite as large as uh, you know it potentially had the the level to go to, but. He got it, and, and he was the one who, you know, worked our, with, uh, you know, our finance people to figure out the way that we could best afford it and, and structure things so that it made the most sense for us in an organization. But, you know, there's times where, and I've seen it over the years, that when Jerry gets focused on us potentially getting a player, we tend to get that player, and, and Luis Robert was one of those guys. Certainly would be, Robert would be an example of just that, and, and just following the Robert, when when he was uh, declared a free agent and the Sox were looked at as, as one of the favorites, it was very big on Twitter. And you've said publicly you're on Twitter, but you're not Rick Hahn or anything. You're definitely not, not Rick Hahn at the Twitter account. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, when you kept acquiring all these teams' best prospects, the fans, as you said earlier, were getting really excited about it. What is the, your most, uh, what is the best thing you've seen on Twitter, whether it's a, a GIF or uh, anything else after moves that you've made? Oh, that's a good question. It's a good question. Those my, my kids tend to find them a little more quickly than I do. Uh, and I, they, I, you know, I have to admit it, they're, they're 14 and 12, so I think they can be excused for it, but they're big WWE fans. Uh, <laughs> and I think that uh, the one that resonated with them or the one where they actually thought perhaps for the first time that their dad had a cool job was uh, when I got, uh, I think it was Redline Radio, did a gif of uh, my head on a Vince McMahon entrance at a WWE event uh, after we had signed Luis. And, and that was one that the kids thought was cool, so i got to put that one at the top of, of the list. But there's been, some, there's been some good ones out there. There's some good ones out there. I'm more, unfortunately, more often than not, they come up with some of the worst photos of me that have been <laughs> in the order, which isn't hard. There's a, there's a good, good amount of those crappy photos to choose from. Uh, but those tend to be the ones that I see, which means I, I quickly turn the page. Yeah, there's a, a lot of grainy pictures of Rick Hahn with sunglasses on. Yep, yep. But just to close out, and then I'll let you go, you know, the Sox are 41-68, and 68, and if the season ended today, they would be picking second in the draft. They're one pick out from the first pick. Uh, obviously, it's important for the young players to perform at the big league level. But you and, and I'm sure maybe like someone like Nick Hostetler, you guys have had to have some texting conversations about that first pick, right? <laughs> we'll wait to see where we wind up at the end of the year, and then we'll, then we'll bear down on who's available. But in all seriousness, the, the 18 draft uh, projects to be a fairly deep one. It projects to be a good draft. And uh, regardless of where we're picking, given the likely area which we're going to wind up based on the 17 teams' performance, it appears that 
uh, we're going to be able to have access to some pretty elite level talent, which is obviously important as we go through this process. You know, I just got back from Boston with the team, and, and obviously uh, the performance didn't go or the results didn't go as we would hope. Uh, but Ricky and, and the coaching staff is, is as focused on doing everything they can to win each and every game, which is what they should be doing. Uh, if the results wind up uh, such that we wind up picking first or third or fifth, uh, I am confident we're going to wind up in a position to continue to advance what we've started here over the last 13 months through the draft in 18, which, which is going to be an important next step. And that is White Sox General Manager Rick Hahn, always thorough and informative. Rick, you know how much we appreciate your time. Uh, and, and we definitely want to thank you for all your moves, as, as it's brought a lot of web traffic to us, and uh, just wish you the best of luck moving forward. Hey, you bet, Brian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.